This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. The value growth style split is one of the most enduring constructs of equity markets. Even the Morningstar style box created in 1992 was built in part on this concept of dividing an equity market into these different types of stocks. And equity managers themselves tend to fall into these buckets, being dubbed value, growth, or core, which is somewhere between the others. My guest today has a lot to say about value investing, most importantly, I think, around the idea that value investing is rightly understood as a way to invest, rather than a description of what you invest in. I'm delighted to welcome Daniel Needham to the studio today. Daniel is President and Chief Investment Officer of Morningstar Investment Management, which means he leads our business not only in the United States, but around the world. Daniel, thank you for being here. Thanks, Drew. I'm very happy to be here. So I want to start by defining value and growth from what's called a systematic risk or a factor investing perspective. Daniel, can you kind of describe what value and growth stocks are in this context? Sure. The definitions, they tend to vary, but to sort of generalize, I would say that value stocks are stocks that tend to have low price to earnings multiples, low price to cash flow multiples, high dividend yields, sort of low price to fundamental ratios. Growth stocks historically have had sort of higher multiples, so higher price to earnings, higher price to book, but also some definitions include expected earnings growth based off consensus data, as well as historical sales or revenue growth. And so, you know, the most well-known sort of definition of value growth has been price to book or book to market. And that's the one that probably has been studied the most in academic literature. But basically, the idea with any sort of systematic risk is that the stocks that have these same sort of fundamentals would then also respond in similar ways to market dynamics. Is that right? So the idea of value growth being, let's say, a risk factor or some characteristic of portfolios. And so this comes back a little bit to the sort of traditional finance sort of modern portfolio theory type frameworks where you only get paid for bearing risk in markets. And so given that value is historically outperformed growth based off just using the definition that I provided before. So looking at, say, price to book, low price to book is value, high price to book is growth. Historically, over a very long period of time, low price to book stocks have outperformed high price to book stocks. And so because the theory around the sort of value premium was driven largely by kind of traditional finance, the view was that you only get paid more if you bear risk, because if you know if you make more without bearing more risk, then the markets must not be efficient or pricing things effectively. So historically, value had been viewed as a risk premium. Investing in these stocks, you're bearing more risk, and so therefore that's why you get the higher return. The behavioural sort of camp has a different view, and they, they've looked at things like overreaction and extrapolation as explanations as to why, say, value stocks, stocks that trade on low price to book, have outperformed, and that's because there's been a kind of a collective mispricing because investors have extrapolated or they've overreacted to sort of fundamental news. And so there really are two explanations for it. I would say within 
sort of, you know, traditional finance and most, say, software tools, tools that Morningstar has and other providers, generally, you know, value and growth are, are characteristics or factors that can be used in risk models or can be used to explain relative performance of strategies versus benchmarks. And I just want to emphasize, you know, that it's a value premium. It's not a growth premium. It just reminded me of a conversation I had with a colleague here, not a member of the investment team, but was talking about value growth and was surprised that it wasn't a value premium because most of his life, value has probably outperformed, at least most of his professional life. And so it might be surprising to, to some people to learn even that over the long term, there is a value premium rather than, rather than a growth premium. Mm. Yeah, I think it's important, you know, that these are long-term relationships based off historical data. And it's a very particular way of looking at the world. And I think from our perspective, we wouldn't necessarily agree with this idea that, you know, if you're a value investor, you invest in low price to book stocks. And if you're a growth investor, you invest in high price to book stocks. We think that's an oversimplification and that actually it potentially clouds what is sort of intelligent investing. Yeah, so, so modern portfolio theory and, and factor investing attempt to see the world in a very precise mathematical way, but you would say that value investing is much different. And can you explain what you mean by value investing and talk a bit about where that idea came from? Sure. Well, I think that when we say value investing, we would say that that means buying an asset, you know, whether it's a fractional share of an asset, like a stock, you know, in the stock market, we think the value of that investment should be determined based off the cash flows that you expect over the life of the investment that's discounted at an appropriate rate. So you work out what you think the present value of all the cash flows are, and then you compare that to the price. And if you can buy the cash flows for less than what you think they're worth, then that's value investing. And I think you've described this, right, as sort of like buying a vending machine. For someone who doesn't know the math of calculating net present value, you can think about buying a a vending machine, right, and investing in that. And then let's just say the vending machine produces roughly what it costs to buy another vending machine at the end of the year. And so at the end of year one, you now get a new vending machine. You have two vending machines. At the end of year two, you've got four vending machines because the money that is produced through the sale of candy and whatnot in the vending machine then accrues to you as the owner and then multiplies as as the business grows. The reason why I think the vending machine example is useful is because often when people think about investing in stocks, they think about them as kind of squiggly lines, you know, on the screen. And the way you make money from investing in stocks is that you pay a low price for the stock. And when the stock is up a lot, you know, you sell the stock and that's your profit. We think it's really important that people understand that when you buy stocks, you're actually buying fractional shares of the ownership of businesses that make stuff and sell stuff. And it can sometimes be a mystery to people, well, what is a stock? And so ultimately, it's a fraction of a business. And well, businesses are assets that manufacture or make stuff and sell it. And generally, for good businesses, they're able to, to sell them at a price much greater than what it costs them to manufacture the goods. And that's where profits you know, come from. And so it often helps to think about, well, okay, well, if I have a business that owns vending machines and, you know, and effectively every year I just distribute the cash flows that I've made from, you know, selling soda and candy, that's where my dividends come from. And if I want to have more vending machines, then, you know, I need to raise capital from investors and buy more vending machines. And so therefore I'll issue shares and there'll be more owners and I can buy vending machines. Or instead of paying out the cash flows that I get from the vending machines each year, I actually retain it and buy more vending machines. So as an investor, I no longer get paid dividends. But what I see is that the cash flows that the business generates continues to grow with a number of vending machines. And so therefore, whilst I'm not getting my returns from the dividends, the price 
of the share of the vending machine business grows over time, increasing. And the reason why the stock price is going up is because the value of the amount of profits that are generated from running the vending machines is increasing. And so it's helpful to think about, you know, things that way. And less helpful to think about it uh, in the more complicated way that I was trying to that's steer right. the metaphor. Yes, I was that's making right. it not simple nor easy. That's right. So the way to think about value, generally value today, obviously high dividend yield, well, you're getting cash flow today. Often, you know, growth is value in the future, investing for future cash flows. But to value any business, any investment, value you, you have to include growth in the calculation. So will these cash flows grow or not? And if they are going to grow, what's the cost of that growth? You know, all growth has to be financed generally some way. And so that has to feature in the calculation. But I find that one of the most useful things for investors to understand is when you buy a stock, it's really a fractional share of something. And it helps to think about things in a tangible way. So when the market, say, stock prices are down 10, 20%, the question you ask yourself is, okay, my portfolio or, you know, that share's down 20%, you know, is the earnings power of that vending machine business worth 20% less today? If so, why is that? Do I think I'm not going to sell as many candy bars or cans of soda? Do I think that there's been a permanent impairment in the areas where my vending machines are? Like, there aren't going to be as many people to go there. So often thinking about things that way allows you to escape the psychology of the market and think a little more kind of rationally and, and sensibly about things. And, and often, you know, looking through to the fundamentals can be both simple and easy. So for a value investor, traditionally, this is thought of in the stock or equity asset class. And again, as you said, value investors are looking to buy any business at a discount. And so is value invested limited to this context or, or how else might we see value investing? Anywhere where you think you can estimate the value of an asset or the cash flows of an asset, and you can compare it to a price, I think applies. And the way I think about value investing is it's a very much a probabilistic activity. You know, you want positive expected value. Uh, you can think about it from sort of, you know, horse racing. <laughs> there can be situations where you think the probability that a horse is going to win is higher than what's implied in the odds. And so therefore, that could be argued to be a value investment. Now, generally, horse tracks or bookies take about 15% of the bet. And so it's really hard to find mispriced horse bets. But um, hard, hard to consider horse racing uh, an investment. That's right. That's right. But your point is really about this uh, probabilistic that's view right. toward any sort of uh, risk activity. That's right. So what's the probability I'm going to make money times how much I make less what's the probability I'm going to lose money times how much it I would lose. And ideally, when you add those together, you want it to be positive. And often, you know, equities that are bought at a reasonable price that, you know, you're not paying too high a price relative to the cash flows they generate now, generally that creates a positive probability skew for the investor. But ideally, what you're looking to do is you want to be investing in assets where you feel like the value of the cash flows that you expect are greater than the price you're paying for them. And so Charlie Munger, who is kind of Warren Buffett's sort of offsider at Berkshire Hathaway, has a very well-known line. He says that all intelligent investing is value investing, getting more than what you're paying for. And so ultimately, that's what value investing is. And so when you think about the sort of more traditional value growth dichotomy, that doesn't stand up to that question because there can be situations where stocks are value stocks. In the traditional sense, they've got low PEs, low price to book, high dividend yields. But they could be expensive because when you look on a forward-looking basis, you might think that the price is high because that business has very poor prospects. They've got very low return on invested capital. Management maybe isn't very good. Maybe they're in an industry that's actually in decline such that what looks cheap 
in a traditional sense with low PEs, that could be expensive. You could be paying more than what it's worth. On the other hand, there may be a company that, you know, its stock is trading at really high P multiples, high price to book, a very low dividend yield, maybe not even paying any dividends and, you know, gets called a growth stock. But that company could have fantastic prospects. They could be in an expanding market. They could have very high return on investment, very high return on tangible assets. They may be able to deploy incremental capital at really high rates. And so that could actually be cheap. So you may be buying something that's trading at 30 times earnings, could be trading at a, you know, a 30, 40% discount. So, you know, it's not possible to kind of draw sort of blanket conclusions about whether something's cheap or expensive based off whether it's kind of in a value index or a growth index. What's required is kind of doing the calculations and looking at what, you know, future cash flows can come out of the investment and uh, relative to what it's currently trading at. You mentioned Warren Buffett. He, of course, is a, a skein of Ben Graham. So is that sort of the roots of value investing? I think it's fair to say, you know, Ben Graham, along with David Dodd, they wrote Security Analysis. It was written in the early 30s. And, you know, that was a, the beginning of what is probably today known as value investing. And, you know, there are a number of, of folks that read and followed Ben Graham and Warren Buffett was one of his students at Columbia. Ben Graham taught an investing class there. And um, I would say Ben Graham has been the most influential, sort of the grandfather of value investing. You know, there are other investors that I would argue were value investors as well. So John Maynard Keynes also was a very successful value investor. So he ran a very focused portfolio, was quite a contrarian, but arguably was, you know, a very focused value investor. You know, John Burr Williams wrote a book, The Theory of Investment Value, I think in the 30s as well. And, you know, he he was the guy that really came up with the idea that the value of a stock or bond or asset is, you know, really the discounted value of future cash flows, discounted at appropriate rates. So, so there are a number of kind of folks around that time that were really thinking about value investing and defining it. But Ben Graham and David Dodd, you know, really, that's the kind of seminal book that most value investors, and I've got a, a copy of it, the sixth edition on my coffee table at home, much to the frustration of my wife. <laughs> to get to the point you were making earlier, Buffett, you know, one of the most well-known value investors of our time now at his Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting in 2019, you know, got a, a question from a shareholder about whether he's sort of, you know, drifting from his value approach because they had bought Amazon.com in the past year. You know, responded, of course, that looking at book value or low price to earning ratios or anything like that isn't the right way to think about this. And of course, quoted the same quote you did from Charlie Munger about, you know, all investing being value investing. So looking at the way we invest here at Morningstar Investment Management, we will presumably invest as easily as readily in a growth asset class as we would in value. Is that right? We try to, you know, not use the value growth sort of definition to define what we invest in. There are value and growth indexes that are available and there's lots of you know terms that are used. But when we're investing, we're looking at what do we think the expected cash flows are from the investment and then what are we going to pay for it? So whether we're looking at asset classes, whether we're looking at the relative attractiveness of equity markets or the relative attractiveness of equity sectors or industries, whether we're looking at corporate bonds versus government bonds, whether we're looking at, say, REITs, you know, uh, real estate investment trusts, you know, across regions or within markets, whether we're looking at bottom-up securities or whatever part of the market we're looking at, we try to estimate what we think the cash flows will be and then whether they're trading at a discount and how do those investments compare to other investments that are available. You know, sometimes we may look at, say, a value index and we may say, wow, that portfolio of value stocks as defined by the index constructor looks expensive or looks cheap. And so, 
sometimes value stocks are cheap. <laughs> you, you know, sometimes value stocks are expensive and, and vice versa. So there can be times when stocks that are in the growth index are actually quite cheap, quite underpriced relative to intrinsic value. And so you know, ultimately, value investing, the way we think about it, buying things for less than you think they're worth based off your estimates of cash flow, is highly subjective and judgment-driven. And, you know, frankly, it's not a guarantee of success. It requires people to estimate things and guess things. And unlike other sort of gambling endeavors, you know, say roulette, where, you know, you can see the number that the ball ended on, um, well, there is no end to investing. You don't stop the clock and go, GM was worth this much and you paid this. And so there's, you've won or you've lost. It's continuous activity. So I always think about it's highly subjective and uncertain. And so when you're applying value investing, you have to recognize that you, you could be wrong. And so therefore, when you're making your estimates, it's better to be conservative and it's better to try to buy things with a margin of safety for less than what you think they're worth to provide protection against the risk of being wrong. And then there's a horizon issue here as well, right? Long-term, short-term. Can you talk about that a bit in terms of value investing, short-term results versus long-term results? Yeah, I mean, I think value investing has got very little utility for somebody with a short time horizon. Uh, the relationship between price and, and fundamental value is much, much weaker and less effective over the short term. And, you know, the- and why is that? Well, there are so many things that drive asset prices in the short term that are sometimes less fundamentally driven. They can be sort of flows, sentiment, technical factors in the market, you know, investors that have very different reasons for buying and selling the security than what the kind of long-term fundamental value is. And so, you know, the markets are made up of lots of different participants that have different information on the stock or the investment, and they have different preferences, different time horizons. And so it's possible that you know, the price can move significantly away from what you think it's worth for reasons that are unrelated to your thesis. But generally over time, as expectations turn into reality, as expected cash flows become real cash flows, your thesis on the stock can either be validated or invalidated. And so it takes time for value to emerge. And, and as a value investor, what you want to see is you want to be able to see undiscounted value emerge over time in the price. And generally that takes time. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that drive prices in the short term. Over the long term, we think the main anchor for prices is cash flows, is the fundamental cash flow. And so that's when value investing we think works the best. And we think that it's possible to guess what you think cash flows will be over the longer term. And Guess meaning how, how, how do you guess? Yeah, estimate what we think they're worth. Mm -hmm. So we look at the business, we look at the market, we look at the industry, we look at what returns have been able to be generated historically from similar businesses. We look at the competitive position and the amount of capital that's been kind of raised in that part of the market. Is there a lot of competition? Do we think that that industry can grow? Will it grow more than the economy, less than the economy? You know, generally try to understand what we think the cash flows will be based off those factors. And, you know, often history, the past isn't prologue of the future. So, you know, you have to do your work and try to work out whether you could be right or wrong about that. And so, you know, generally it requires a lot of fundamental analysis. You have to recognize it's important to have a view about what's happened historically. So we think base rates, looking at the distribution of profit margins and growth rates, return on investment of companies historically is useful. Like small businesses have been able to grow at much higher rates than large businesses. And so a base rate is really, if I didn't know anything else, what's a reasonable starting point? 
what companies like this tend to yeah. make in an environment like this. That's right. And then from there, you, you adjust that and you go, well, this is a really good company. And so therefore, I think it can grow at a higher rate. And you know, there can be lots of reasons in this where fundamental analysis. But, but often where people make the most mistakes is what Daniel Kahneman calls the inside view and the outside view. And the inside view is, no, no, this is a really great company. I know this is going to do well. The outside view says, well, actually, let's step back and look at all companies that were similar to this company. Well, how have they gone? And you might find the inside view says, you know, this business can grow at 25% for the next 20 years. Well, looking at the outside view, it might say, well, actually, fewer than 1% of companies have ever been able to do that. So is that a reasonable assumption? And so I would say that value investing really tries to focus on reasonable base rates. The future is unknowable. But it's possible, we think, to handicap things and to look at reasonable assumptions and that can help you estimate what you think something's worth. Again, it's not an exact science, but hopefully you can come up with an estimate that is reasonable. And if you can buy the asset for less than that, ideally at a, at a big discount, then that provides some protection for you know, analytical error or you know, just bad luck. So because we think this way, you know, how does that affect our view of risk and of diversification? Yeah, I think risk is risk is a tricky concept because you know it's very multidimensional, and so traditional finance is largely assigned it as you know relative price movement, and you know things like you know standard deviation, standard deviation, uh, yeah. beta, covariance. Generally, it's viewed now as like how will the asset price move relative to something bad happening in the economy, and certain assets that may be ex- more exposed to a depression or a severe recession that do well in an environment where incomes fall and people lose their jobs, the view is that, that they should have a higher return than, than other assets. But generally, we view risk as the likelihood and the severity of loss. Which is the way your average investor would probably look at it. If you've invested in something and you get a certain amount of your value wiped out, then that's right. That just seems like a very common sense way of looking at it. Yeah, and I think the challenge is that um, when is there a permanent loss versus when is it a temporary fluctuation in value? And that's where time horizon becomes really important. You know, somebody that wants to be able to spend their investment, their capital, how much they've invested in the next 12 months, then, you know, investing in any equity is arguably incredibly risky because whilst there's a decent probability that it goes up over the next 12 months, there's also a large probability that it goes down. And so the surefire way to permanently lose capital is to sell investments after they've fallen in value. Mm-hmm. It's almost guaranteed to lock in losses. And so if you've got a five to 10 year horizon, then you know the probability of losing changes dramatically over that period. And so you have to think about the risk of loss with respect to, is this a permanent loss or a temporary loss? Generally, the longer the time horizon goes, the more the risk of loss is driven by fundamental cash flows. So, so in investing in a, uh, a market or a company that just deteriorates, it, it kind of falls right. apart, it's, its economy breaks down, if it's a country, uh, if that's it's a company, it's, it's got bad management and it's kind of you know, just bleeding assets, it's not well managed. It doesn't yeah. sort of turn its business and, and the revenues from that into value for the shareholders. That's right. So, you know, you can think about it. So James Montier from GMO outlines three. He says the three ways to lose money permanently is to overpay. Like if you significantly overpay for an asset, then you, you could you know experience a loss. You won't get the returns you expect. You can't get it back because to get any money back, you have to sell. And even if it's gone up, you can't go back and rebuy it at a lower price. I think, yeah, I think about the valuation losses as a probabilistic one. Like 
you may it's possible that you'll recoup what you lost, but it may require you know you to increase your investment by five or ten times, which is incredibly unlikely. So probabilistically, you might as well view that as a loss. Then there's the fundamental, which is the earnings power of the assets in the business are not worth what you thought they were. So there's a fundamental deterioration in the cash flow generating ability of the assets of the business, and so that's the second way. So and that's that can be known as a value trap. Right? Yeah, it you could can, be. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You you thought that the business was going to generate had this level of earnings power, and it turns out not to be the case, which means that effectively you overpaid, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is Even kind of- Even if you thought you bought it at a discount, you used your estimates, you thought you had every good reason in your opinion that uh, that's right. that the asset was going to continue to grow or at least carry on at a certain level yeah. of asset returns, and it just that's didn't right. work out that way. And the way to think about the cash flows, I, when we think about the very long term, we think about, say, stocks and bonds, equities, the main- Risk is a depression, deflationary depression, great depression. Like that is, that's the risk that, you know, can severely impair cash flows of equities. For bonds, it's inflation, the cash flows. If you have a really period of very high inflation, then the value of those cash flows can be worth significantly less. So they're the more extreme fundamental risks for equities and bonds. And then the third is really leverage. And so you could have a business that's got really good assets, but the balance sheet is geared up too much. And so therefore, if you've got something that's you know 10% equity, 90% debt, it doesn't take a very large fluctuation in the cash flows of the asset to impair your ability to repay the debt. So the assets are good, but the balance sheet isn't. And so therefore, you can lose. As, a, as an equity owner, you can get wiped out. Or you can sort of certainly have your, your value impaired as maybe the company has to issue a ton of equity and you get heavily diluted at you know, a time when it couldn't be worse for you. And so they're the three main ways. And on that last point, the, a good example would be long-term capital management? Yeah, uh, that's a very specific example, but it could be you know, um, REITs, for example, in 2006, 2007, leading into the global financial crisis. Um, any example where you know, the balance sheet's been stretched and you know, the assets are good, but the balance sheet isn't, and so you don't get value. I mean, I think there's situations where you have leverage buyouts and things like that, where the business is good but the balance sheet squeezes them and it can have a negative effect on the business because then they stop investing in marketing, R&D and things like that. So you want to be wary of highly leveraged balance sheets, especially of businesses that have got marginal levels of profitability. But the way we think about it is you can overpay for what you think something's worth. The cash flows are lower than what you'd expected. And then that even if the cash flows on the assets are good, you know, it's too much leverage and a, and a recession wipes you out because cash flows fall and the debt can't be surfaced. Generally, they're the three ways we think about fundamental risk. And ultimately, it's losing money you can't make back is really the measure. Um, An easy way for investors to manage that is to make sure that they don't invest in things that they feel like they're going to need to sell that could fall a lot in value in in a shorter period of time. And so, you know, equities can move around a lot. And so you really have to be prepared to see your value of your portfolio move around. Otherwise, you could get trapped into selling at the wrong time. And diversification, um, you know, diversification in sort of modern portfolio theory is thought of as, you know, like balancing these kind of systematic risks, right? And instead we are are looking at it how? Yeah, I, I think modern portfolio theory traditionally, at least as it's been kind of taught at universities and in textbooks, is that, you know, ultimately you don't want to look at the risk of an individual investment. You want to look at the total portfolio risk, which we actually don't have so much of an issue with. The way it's traditionally been calculated is it looks at historical correlations, how have asset prices moved relative to each other historically? 
you know, when equities are up or bonds down. And so you develop something which in technical uh, terms is a covariance matrix, and then you plug that in and, and you build your portfolio off the back of that. And so diversification is adding assets that increase the return without increasing risk or can, you know, um, vice versa, vice versa. Which, again, I think as a portfolio manager, putting lots of different things in the portfolio could be helpful. But the question is, how do you work that out? And so we would say that you need to understand the fundamental drivers of the different investments that you hold and understand fundamentally how they're linked. So a good example is equities and bonds. You know, in an environment where there's an economic recession, generally corporate profits fall. So, you know, when the economy declines, generally revenue declines for companies as revenue declines, you know, fixed costs in the business generally are fixed. Companies can often only cut variable costs and so profit margins fall pretty quickly. At the same time, companies generally have debt and interest rate payments are largely fixed. And so therefore, the cost of financing the balance sheet increases as a portion of sort of revenues. And so profit margins kind of get squeezed and, and earnings fall in a recession, an economic recession. So the cash flows that companies generate decline. During that period, often, you know, the coupons on government bonds don't change. They're fixed. So your coupons are fixed and phenomenal government bonds. Coupons are fixed and the principal's fixed. So, you know, the value of those cash flows can actually go up in a recession relative to earnings are falling, coupons are stable. But probably the bigger effect is that interest rates tend to come down during recessions as central banks tend to cut interest rates and potentially undertake sort of unconventional monetary policy, which can drive down the, the sort of uh, implied discount rates or yields of bonds, which drives the price up. And so what happens is that during an economic recession, bond prices can rise while equity prices fall. But it's the linkage through the economic environment that is why they move in opposite directions. And so we think it's important to understand why assets are diversifying rather than just take the historical correlation or the historical relationship of price movements. You've got to unpack it. And we think that can allow you to more intelligently diversify the portfolio and avoid kind of more statistical diversification, which exposes you to the future looking very different to the past. And so we do a lot of fundamental research around why we think things will behave a certain way relative to each other. And then that way, when we add investments for diversification reasons, we really understand what we expect from them. We think that's important. You know, if you're adding an asset to the portfolio, it should be increasing return or reducing risk. And you really have to have an understanding of why that you think that will be the case. So a, fun, uh, a, a, a contrary example to fundamental diversification might be owning the stocks of one company and then owning the bonds issued by the same company and thinking that you have a, a somewhat diverse portfolio, even though essentially all of the economic drivers are, are the same because it's the same company. Is that Yeah, that I mean, that's, a, that's a one way of looking at it. That's right. So in that situation, you don't have as much diversification as maybe you think you do. So you're kind of you're investing along the, the capital structure of the same company. And so you, you want to look through. So stocks and, and credit, corporate debt, generally corporate bonds do poorly at the same time, generally when equities do poorly as well. And so you can, you can look at that relationship like, because corporations are borrowing money as well as issuing equity, which you, you own as a stock investor. And during tough periods, they, they both get hit at the same time. And so understanding that, it's relatively straightforward, but sometimes it's these kind of more complex linkages that you know if you're not doing the work, you might miss them. So, you know, I think global financial crisis was the linkage between sort of the banks and the housing stocks and the monoline insurers. And there was a relatively complicated linkage. And I'm not saying that they're easy to spot ahead of time. But if you're on the lookout for them, um, that kind of fundamental analysis can have a much bigger impact on how you manage risk 
than say maybe some of the more traditional risk models that people use, which are largely driven by historical price relationships and, and relationships between price movements and factors, characteristics, which there's always an element of relying on history for those. And so I think there's no substitute for somebody really doing fundamental work and thinking things through. So sometimes people might look at our portfolios and say, we've got a lot of different asset classes in there. Is that really necessary for diversification? But that's not really why they're there. Is that right? So the way we approach investing, we prefer to take a more unconstrained approach. And so rather than sort of starting with the market and working away from it, we, we look at everything that's available. And so we screen the investable universe by industry, sector, country, asset class, and hundreds of asset classes yeah, so were, or sub-asset classes. 200 equity have. markets, 150 fixed income markets, I think 30, 30 currencies. And we develop valuation implied returns for them, what we think you would get if you bought and held them for the next 10 years based off our valuation framework and our fundamental research. And so we, we really scan the universe very wide and then we seek to invest in those that are the most attractive. And what we found is that the more unconstrained we can be, the wider the net that we cast, the more likely it is that we're going to find something that we think is attractive. And in some environments, there's lots of investment opportunities and things are very attractive. In other environments, it's pretty slim pickings. And so in those environments, we have to be quite selective. And I would argue that we're kind of in one of those environments now where there aren't as many opportunities. And so we need to get pretty granular to find those. And so what happens is that in our portfolios, especially our unconstrained multi-asset strategies, will you know, be relatively eclectic in the exposures, the asset classes and strategies that we have in there. And so, uh, again, it's they enter the portfolio based off the same investment philosophy. You know, But if we limited the number of, of asset classes, we're really just limiting the number of opportunities that we have to go search for value, you know, across the world, basically. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, I think the more constrained your opportunity set, you know, the, the fewer opportunities you're going to have to buy things that are underpriced, Investing overseas always carries some incremental currency risk and the more granular you get into markets, the more idiosyncratic the drivers. And so there's there's lots of pros and cons of kind of expanding the opportunity set, but we've got a framework that we think allows us to screen the universe and to really focus in on areas that are the most attractive and then do really deep fundamental research to build conviction or otherwise in the investment. And so, you know, we think being able to cast a wide net is is really important for investors. Daniel, you hear occasionally the opinion that value is dead, that the world has changed and the value approach may not work in the future as it has in the past. How would you respond to that? I think value investing in the sense of buying things for less than they're worth is still just as relevant as it's ever been. And so I think it's still a perfectly fine way of finding investment. So it's a tough game. There's a large number of well-resourced and intelligent investors out there that are scouring the world for investment opportunities. And so it's a tougher game than it was 30 years ago to find value because there's lots of people that are doing it. And so you need to recognize that markets are hard to beat and that there's a lot of competition. My view is that the payoff from sort of long-term value investing that kind of maybe tends towards more of a contrarian approach is going to be lumpier than in the past and that, you know, you have to really have a long time horizon. and Lumpier meaning the, the returns will come sort of in, in clumps and lumps right. rather than sort of like little nicks and pieces. They're not going to be distributed evenly through time. You yeah, can yeah. underperform for a very long period of time and then you'll have a, you know, a huge windfall sort of a, not that it's been, you know, you certainly couldn't set your, your watch to it, but I think it's going to be harder. And so, but I think there's definitely going to be returns for value investing but it's not a guarantee of success. You know, you have to be right in your assessments of the cash flows. You have to be sensible when you buy the price that you pay versus the cash flows. 
it's by no means going to be an easy game. Our view is that the best opportunities are presented when there's a, uh, a mispricing that's caused by a collective error that's made by investors, primarily through imitation and, and social influence and interdependence where you know the wisdom of the crowd stops working effectively. There's lots of different potential inefficiencies in the market, but the behavioral side is one that we think is the most enduring and presents the best opportunity and goes kind of hand in glove with long-term value investing. And so we're on the lookout for those. And so I think that you don't want to be trading every day. I think the more that you buy and sell every day, I think the less likely it is that you're going to find things that are cheap. And so you be more selective. Is value investing dead question relates to the fact that value stocks, as we've defined them as, you know, low PE, low price to book, high dividend yield, they're trading on very low multiples relative to growth stocks, you know, high price to book, you know, high sales growth businesses that are expected to grow. The spread between those two is quite wide relative to history and value, that traditional value style is underperformed significantly over the last decade. And it's getting to similar levels to sort of 99 sort of period. Some people say it's beyond that. It depends on how you define value. But let's just say probably everybody's in agreement that it's pretty extreme. And so the question is, is that a permanent feature? Will there be reversion or or are things? And so my view on it is that some of it is justified in the sense that there's been a structural change and that, you know, some of the, you know, platform businesses, um, some of the technology-based businesses, are, it, it truly is disruption. And so there, there certainly is arguably part of it is, you know, is a structural change. I, at the same time, I think there's an element of it that is there's extrapolation and overreaction and people potentially overpaying for some of these disruptive businesses. And so my guess is that part of it's justified, but a large part of it isn't. And so there'll probably be some reversion. We certainly... You know, we, we're seeing more opportunities in stocks and sectors that would more traditionally fit into that value camp. And people are assuming that the, you know, the return on invested capital for these value type sectors, these capital intensive sectors, these more traditional sectors is going to stay low. And that, you know, the businesses that are kind of, let's say, high growth potential, more stable earnings, the high returning businesses, they're going to be able to maintain their, their high returns. And historically, returns in the lower quadrant lower returning businesses tends to mean revert and returns in the higher content tend to sort of fall down, you know. So I think there's a high likelihood of that normal reversion happening. And, and you know, the capital cycle is very powerful. Profits attract capital. Increased capital investment increases competition, which drives down future returns, which repels capital. And, you know, the cycle rolls again. And so I think that that structure is still in place. Daniel, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Drew. It's been, uh, been a lot of fun. And please come back soon. Just try and keep me away. <laughs> My guest today has been Daniel Needham, President and CIO at Morningstar Investment Management. And thank you for joining us today on Simple But Not Easy. I'm Drew Carter. So long for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, 
and risk profile before making any investment decision.